You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, um, it's great to see you. We've got a lot of ground to cover and a lot of work to do. So 1 Peter chapter 5 is where we're going to be. 1 Peter chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, um, there should be one underneath every three or four seats, something like that. So feel free to grab one of those. I think it would really serve you to have one that you're looking at there. So 1 Peter chapter 5. So you need to make sure you're there. It's going to take us just a second or two to get there, though. Um, When I come to passages like this, I feel like as a preacher, it's kind of this paradox, Um, especially a passage that deals with pride and humility, because I'm about to teach something I have full recognition that I'm a long way from. And so I think it's, it's worth giving this preface, actually a couple of prefaces to this whole kind of conversation we're about to have. And one of them is just the recognition and just the awareness that I'm about to preach something. And for you to know this, that uh, when I think about my life and what this text is calling us toward, that I feel like I am far, far from. And so um, my posture in this is not as a tour guide who's going to show you what to do um, as a fellow traveler who, by the grace of God, is trying to do what God's calling us to do. And so that's my posture. I I love the words of uh, C.J. Mahaney, and I would totally echo them with how I feel about me in relationship to pride when he says this, that I'm a proud man pursuing humility by the grace of God. And so I just want to preface this conversation, this whole issue of pride and humility by saying that. Full awareness that I am a very prideful man who is pursuing humility by the grace of God. So I want you to know that first. And secondly, when I think about this pride and humility issue, this whole topic that that this text is going to raise for us today, um, I, I think it's worth saying this. This applies to every one of us in the room. Pride is a part, a fundamental part of what it means to be a fallen human being. So, so here's what I know for you and for me, for all of us in the room, that pride is a great foe for you, that it's a great foe for you, that, that it is a problem in your life, that, that some of you this morning, your life is literally being ripped to shreds by pride. And some of us don't have eyes to see it yet. And so I'm praying by the grace of God that he might give us some of those uh, today. But I, as I've thought about pride this week and just in my own, like personally, my own life and personally, what pride has cost me. Physically, relationally, emotionally, I mean, financially, I could go down every little list of categories in my life and what pride has cost me. It has been a staggering reality to come to there. And and if you want something that that would be a Selah, just sit and think about it moment, give 30 minutes to thinking about that for you. What pride has cost you personally? And it's a staggering thing to look at. And just doing that this week has has clarified why John Stott, who has uh, written extensively on pride and humility, it's clarified for me why he would say this. Listen to these words. It'll be on the the screen for you. He says this. At every stage of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. Now just sit under that for a second. At every stage of our life, in every area of our life, your greatest enemy is pride. Your greatest friend is humility. At every area, in every area, at every stage, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. So it's just a matter of what you want to talk about. Do we want to talk about your marriage? In the context of your marriage, you know what your best friend in your marriage is? Humility. Do you know what your greatest enemy is? Pride. 
Do we want to talk about finances for you? Do we want to talk about your job and you being fruitful at your job? Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. Do we want to talk about relationships and friendships that you have? Pride is your greatest enemy to those things. Humility is your greatest friend. In every area of your life, this is true. If we want to talk about just Christian growth, growth in grace, advancement in our walk with God, if we want to talk about that, pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend in every area of your life. This is true. Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility, your greatest friend. So so as we start walking down this road, I want to read an excerpt from uh, a, uh, a sermon that Charles Spurgeon did on pride and humility. Just to get us thinking in terms of how the Bible deals with this issue. So so listen to these words from Charles Spurgeon. He says this. There is no sin into which the heart of man so easily falls as pride. And yet there is no vice which is more frequently and emphatically and more eloquently condemned in the scriptures. Pride is the, I love this phrase, pride is the worst monstrosity of all the monstrous things in creation. Pride is the worst monstrosity of all the monstrous things in creation. If you want to have a madman in your heart, embrace pride, for you shall never find one more mad than he. Oh, my friends, you cannot tell how many shapes pride will assume. In other words, it's got many forms. If we were to look across this room, pride is going to show itself in a million different ways in each of our lives. You cannot tell how many uh, shapes pride will assume. But do this. Look sharply at yourself or you will be deceived by pride. And when you think you're entertaining angels, you will find that you have been receiving devils unaware. And if I have a hope for you today, that this is my hope. This is the angst of this morning is that that you would have a morning, just uh, the next 30, 40 minutes in here to look sharply at yourself, to allow just the penetrating word of God to sit over your life, specifically as it deals with pride and humility, so that you would have eyes that could actually see these things in you. So, so with that said, first Peter five is where we are. Three verses. First Peter five, five is where we're starting. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And then here's the command. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So I want to start here. I want to start by talking through and working through the peril of pride. And it's a great peril. Okay, so so look at verse 5 here again. You see it here? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For, now listen to the peril of pride. Here it is. For God opposes the proud. God actively works against the proud. Like for for those who are proud, for those who are self-sufficient, really thinking they can do their life on their own, apart from God, autonomous from God. For, For those who think that, God is actively working against you. See, for those of us who have an inflated view of ourselves, who think more highly of ourselves than we ought, for, for those of us in the room who fit that, who are prideful, here's what it's, I think this would be the metaphor for it. It would be, um, in essence, it would be you jumping into a ring, strapping on your boxing gloves and going nine rounds with God. 
This is what this is what pride does. It puts us in that ring to where we're now contending with God. We're competing against God. And here's what every prideful person will find out at some point in their life that God will oppose them. And in that ring, here's what we will find. God's arms are stronger than ours and longer than ours. That his mighty hand is actually working against you. This is why um, Proverbs 16 is going to say that pride comes before the fall. So in other words, if you're prideful, the fall is coming. You're in the ring with God. You can't last in there. His arms are stronger. His arms are longer than yours. You have no chance in that ring. And I think it's interesting just when you survey the scriptures and and specifically looking for God's posture towards pride. It's really an amazing thing that pride has this way of attracting the attention of God that no one in the room wants. It has that sort of an ability to attract the attention of God. And it's the sort of attention from God that you do not want. Do you remember in uh, in Proverbs chapter six, uh, essentially it's listed before us things that God hates. So it's going to list seven things that God hates. These are things that, that God would look at with special hatred. And you remember what's at the top of that list? Haughty eyes, a prideful heart. You come to 1 Peter 5, and you know what you're going to find? That this is God's posture towards the, the proud. I oppose you. I, I'm at, my hand is working to frustrate you. I, I'm actively working against you. Okay, now the question is, why does God feel that way about pride? Like, What is it about pride that stirs up this special attention that you and I don't want? Um, listen to John Stott answer that question. Why does God look at pride like this? For this reason. He says this, for it is the stubborn refusal to let God be God with the corresponding ambition to take his place. It is the attempt to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves. Sin is, and specifically pride, sin is self-deification. Do you see why God would hate pride? Because when, when you're prideful, you're contending with God. You're saying to God, um, God, I'm not going to submit to you. God, in this moment, I really think I would be a better God in the universe than you are. I actually think that my plan for the universe is a little better than your plan for the universe. See, it's self-deification. We're trying to kick God off the throne in our pride and assume his spot. This is why God says, no, go on pride. This is why God opposes the proud. And John Stott goes on to say this. But God uh, says... That since he is God and he alone, he will not share his glory with any other. God accepts no competitors to his throne. Do you know that? This is why God works against the proud. He he accepts no competitors. And I love what Charles Bridges, a pastor in England in the 1800s, he, he talks about pride like this. That pride lifts up one's heart against God and contends for supremacy with him. See, this is what pride does. It contends for supremacy with God. It puts you in the ring with God, gloves on, and your posture towards God is, let's do this. Let's go at it. See, this is, this is what pride is. It's you in the ring saying, God, let's go. And God accepts no challenges. He accepts no competitors. He just crushes them. 
He, he actively works against them. Now, we could, do, we could sit here all morning and give biblical examples of this. I just want to give you two of them. And literally, I mean, behind every page of Scripture, you're going to see pride lurking and, and kind of working itself into the background. But, but let me give you two case studies for pride. One is the book of Daniel. If you want a case study of pride, just read the whole book. But specifically chapter 4, and here's what you're going to find in chapter 4. Do you remember um, what King Nebuchadnezzar says as he's walking around on his roof, surveying kind of the landscape, his, his empire? Do you remember what he says? Here it is. Daniel chapter four, verse 30 says this. King Nebuchadnezzar walking around his roof, he, he says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? That's pride. That's contending with God. That's saying that you did something that only God could do. It's trying to take credit for something that only God could get the credit for. See, he's contending with God for supremacy. And and here's God's, here's a tangible view of what it looks like for God to oppose the proud. Here's how it plays out. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. This is what you call God opposing the proud. He's a king and now his friends are animals. It goes on. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox until you know this, until until you get out of the ring and you know this, until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will. See, this is God opposing the proud. You've got a king high, haughty. And what does God do? He humiliates him. He, He is eating grass with the ox. That is God opposing the proud. Here's another one. In Acts 12, um, you remember the story about Herod? In verse 21 of Acts 12, it says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat up on the throne, and he delivered a speech to them. In verse 22, it says, And the people were shouting, That is the voice of God, not of man. You've got Herod contending with God for supremacy, aspiring to the throne of God. Do you see that? This is, this is pride, case study of pride. And this is a case study on God's opposition to pride, God opposing the proud. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. See, this is what it looks like for God to oppose the proud, that he's using his mighty hand to frustrate you, to work against you. This is God opposing the proud. And listen, the Bible is full of these things. We, we could spend forever here. If you want to talk about Satan and his fall from heaven, it's a case study on pride and God's opposition to pride. If we want to talk about Adam and Eve, our first parents, and them being thrown out of the garden, kicked out of the garden, it's pride and God's opposition to pride. If we want to talk about King Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, we could talk about all those. But here's the truth. If we want to talk about many of our lives right now, do you know where we find ourselves, many of us? We are in the ring with God contending for supremacy with God. And here is what we're in the middle of finding out as our life is coming apart at the seams. God's hands are longer and God's hands are stronger than ours. That God is actively opposing many of us in the room because of our pride right now. That God actively opposes the proud. Okay, this is the peril of pride. But, but there's also some beautiful promises for those who are humble. 
that God actually gives promises to the humble. Now, in this passage, Peter is going to give us three of them. I think you could, you could make a list of more in the Bible, but here's three specific promises that, that God, through First Peter, is saying, these are promises that I give to you who are humble in heart. Okay, look at this here. Look at verse 5. This idea that God promises to give grace to the humble. Verse 5, God opposes the proud, but he does what to the humble? He gives them grace. Now, there is a whole, like, ocean of riches underneath that phrase. That God gives grace to the humble. That there is something about a humble heart before God that it attracts grace. See, pride tracks the sort of gaze from God that you don't want. The sort of attention that you don't want. But humility before God attracts the sort of gaze from God and grace from God that everyone in the room wants. This is really just an echo of Isaiah 66, verse 2, when Isaiah says this, but this is the one to whom I will look. Speaking for God, this is the whom, this is the one to whom God is going to look. The gaze of God is going to be drawn toward. The grace of God is going to be attracted to. This is the one. Who is it? He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. See, for those who are humble, there's like a magnet on you attracting grace from God. So God promises to give grace to the humble. But here's another one for you. Look at verse six. God promises to exalt the humble. Verse six. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. See, God offers everyone in the room like two plans. You've got plan A and here's plan A. Plan A is a good plan. You humble yourself and there will be a day where God lifts you up. That's plan A. You're humble and God does the job of exalting you. Here's plan B. You want to be haughty before God, proud before God. You want to think highly of yourself. And here's what God promises to do. He promises to humiliate you just like King Nebuchadnezzar so he can actually humble you. So you got plan A or plan B. You either humble yourself and God will lift you up or you lift yourself up and God will humiliate you to humble you. And can I just plead with you, plan A is a lot better. It's a lot better, isn't it? See, in plan A, there's not all the blood and guts of people that are just strewn all across your path laying as carnage. But in plan B, there's carnage everywhere. Everyone dies in plan B. Everyone gets humiliated in plan. Plan A is a good plan. Humble yourself before God. And he promises to lift you up. And here's one more in verse, in verse 7. That God promises to help the humble. Verse 7. In the context of humility, casting all of your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. See, our culture thinks this about God. That God helps those who help who? Themselves. Can I just say that is completely anti-gospel and anti-God and anti-Bible, anti-everything to do with this? It's anti-all of that. See, you know who God helps? Those who are humble, those who realize they cannot help themselves. That's who God helps. See, for the proud, for the the self-sufficient, they are the ones that God is actively leveraging his mighty hand, his great power to work against them. But for the humble, do you know what he promises you? That he will use his great power to work for you. Not to frustrate you, but to work for you. Okay, so if this is the peril of pride, this is the promise of humility, I think it's going to be good for us to get some working definitions of these things so that we know kind of where we are in the midst of all this. So that, so that we know if we're in, if we've pitched our tent kind of on the side of pride, we'll know that we need to kind of take that tent down today and we need to pitch that on the other side in the middle of humility. So, so some definitions. We'll start with pride. 
A working definition of pride might go like this. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. Okay, this is pride. It's when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. Pride is self-centered. It's got you at the center of the universe. Everything else orbits around you. Pride is self-sufficient. Doesn't need God. Doesn't want God or anyone else meddling in their affairs. See, the prideful heart says, I can do all of this. It's my strength. It's my power. I can do all of it. Self-sufficient. It's self-congratulatory. It it wants all the applause, all the praise. So so in things that we should look at and say, only God could do that. A a prideful heart says, I have done that. See, a pride is self-defensive. See, a prideful heart cannot stand when somebody says in public about them what they know to be true in private. A prideful heart can't stand that. See, even when somebody speaks something true about you and you, you, you don't like it. If, if it's kind of derogatory, if it, if it shows a weakness in you, you don't like that. Even when you know it's true. A prideful heart is, is self-defensive. A prideful heart is self-righteous. Trying to earn all of its merit before God. See, self-righteousness means that, that you love comparing yourself to other people. So you've got a measuring stick. That could be your morality. That could be your parenting. That could be your financial stability, your possessions, your house. You know, you got some sort of a measuring stick that you look at and measure everyone else against to kind of get your superiority kind of in line with other people. So, so pride is self-righteous. And I, I love what John Stott said, that it's important that you see pride underneath virtually every sin that you commit. This is what he goes on to say here. John Stott, he says, pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. So we're talking Proverbs 6. It's more than being the first on that list of seven deadly sins. It is pride. It is itself the essence of all sin. See, it's down at the root level of sin. It's the reason you do all of these things up here. This, this prideful contending for supremacy with God. I love what Augustine said. He said, pride is like a mother who is pregnant with every other sin. This is pride. It's like a mother pregnant with every other sin that you commit. And I think it's important for you to see that there's two, you know, big picture ways that pride can come out and not just to see pride as one dimensional. See, most of us see pride like this. Pride is that the guy who is overly self-confident. Pride is the arrogant guy. It's kind of the overt picture of pride. This is the guy that when he walks into a room, he brings like an air horn. It goes off. Everybody turns, recognizes he's in the room, gives him an applause, and then he comes in. See, all of us see that as prideful, as, as arrogant. Okay, that's the overt form of pride. But it's also got a very covert form. See, pride can also be um, the person that um, is discouraged and depressed. It would go around um, wailing, woe is me, as he's drawing attention to himself. See, pride can also be that guy. See, th- this is the interesting thing about pride, is it can have, it can kind of put on the outer garments of humility, So it actually looks like humility, but it's actually pride. See, it can look like like self-confidence, and it can look like the person who has no self-confidence. See, do you see the problem in both of those, self-confidence and no self-confidence? Do you see the problem there? It's the word self. That's pride. See, we've got a whole culture who is built around this idea of of self-esteem, 
And, and we've got this whole kind of group that would, that would warn against a, a lack of self-esteem. But can I just say the Bible has no category for a lack of self-esteem. You know what the Bible calls a lack of self-esteem? Blocked pride. That's what it calls it. See, see, the self-confident person, he actually gets the applause from people. So yeah, he's got co- good confidence. He, he, he's aggressive kind of in a room. But, but the guy who has no self-confidence, you know his problem? He doesn't get the applause he wants. So he's not confident in a room. He has no self-esteem. But it's all pride. Both of it is. The problem is you're looking at yourself rather than God. You're contending with God for supremacy. Okay, so if that's pride, what's humility? Humility is the disposition of a person who knows that they are more sinful than they dared imagine. So they know that. That before God, they are more sinful than they dared imagine. That God owes them nothing but hell. They know that. But at the same time, they know this. They know that in the gospel, they are more loved than they dared dream. See, this is, this is the... the the disposition of a humbled heart flows from that, of knowing those things. So in this way, humility really flows from the ability to see clearly. See, here's the problem in almost every one of our lives in here, or really all of us in here. That there is a way that God and the Bible would describe us and think about us. And then there is a way that you think about you and I think about me. And the problem is there's a big gap between those two things. See, pride exists because that gap exists. Humility is the byproduct of that gap shrinking. So, so maybe we've used this metaphor to describe it periodically, but pride is what happens when an ant looks at a flea and says, well, when I look at you and I look at me, I'm seeing someone that's a little bit bigger. I'm seeing someone that's a little more sophisticated. I, I've got this working. See, when I, when I, the ant, look at the flea, I look pretty good. But see, here's what, that's pride. And and this is what humility flows from. When an ant gets next to a lion and realizes that next to a lion, he looks a heck of a lot like a flea. See, that's a humble heart. It's realizing what we are before God. And when we start to see clearly what we are before God, you know who we look a lot more like? Hitler. That's who we look a lot more like. Are, Are we, are we seeing that? That that humility is the ability to see things clearly. Who we are before God clearly. Who God is, who we are in relationship to God. That's humility. Okay, now here's here's what I want to do. I want to take a minute um, and make sure we get on the ground and get really practical so you can see where pride and humility are intersecting in your life. So I want to give some indicators of pride and humility. Like One of the things I was prepping for this um, this weekend was just the awareness that, that if we can't get on the ground, I think you could walk in and out of here and miss how prevalent pride is in you. And so in light of that, I want to give you 10 indicators of humility. Because see, the the issue is not does pride exist in you. The issue is where does it exist in you? And so we need to have eyes that are opening to how pride intersects with our lives. Let me give you 10 of these. Pride and humility, some indicators. Number one, prideful people view sin with indifference. The humble see sin as serious. See, prideful people think they know better than God. So, so who really cares if there's sin in their life? Right? I mean, th- they would view sin as, um, that's an arbitrary thing from God. That's not the way the universe works. I've got a little better way to run the universe. So there's no reason to get up in arms about sin. When sin is presented, we can be lazy with that. 
We can kind of scrape that under the rug. We can maybe deal with that tomorrow. But, but the humble, they see sin as serious as cancer. When sin is brought to their attention, when sin is revealed in them, that there is the utmost seriousness that, that they approach that with. Number two, prideful people are self-reliant. The humble are God-reliant. And if you want maybe one of the easiest ways to see how reliant you are upon yourself versus God, just, just take a week and look at your prayer life. Because you know what? I think most of our prayer lives would show us that we think we've got this thing under control. See, prayer is an expression of God, I'm dependent upon you. And a lack of prayer is an expression of God, I don't need you. I am self-sufficient. I am just fine working independently of you. Just think about the way you start off your day. I think the way most of us would start off our day is expressing to the world that we have got this thing under control. We need nothing else. So the prideful are self-reliant, the humble are God-reliant. Number three, prideful people are grieved most by others' sins against them. The humble are most grieved by their sins against God. Okay, now this is the reason that prideful people are always bitter. They, they can't forgive. See, if you have a problem with forgiveness, do you know what that's showing you? That you are prideful. So your problem isn't just forgiveness. Your, your problem is you're prideful, that you're contending with God for supremacy, that you think you have a way of operating, you have a way of seeing the world, you have a way that the world should go that is better than God's. See, unforgiveness, bitterness, it's, it's pride underneath it. But, but the humble, you know what the humble see? That their sin against God is far greater than anyone's sin will ever be against them. It allows them to forgive freely and graciously. And quickly. Number four, prideful people are, cons- are constantly comparing themselves with others. The humble are content in God. Now, I want to pause over this one um, because I felt a little bit of pride well up in me this week as I um, read a quote from C.S. Lewis that dealt with this whole issue of comparison and pride and how these two things work together. I'm sitting there reading it thinking, I am so envious that he is so much smarter than I am. And so in light of that, I want to read this quote that just links these two things together so you can see how pride and comparison work themselves out. He says this, I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride one had, the more one disliked pride in others. Selah. You hearing that? The more pride you have, the bigger problem the pride of others is going to be to you. And he goes on to explain. In fact, if you, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I want to be the big noise at the party that I am so annoyed at someone else for being the big noise at the party. Are you seeing the problem here? Are you seeing how your pride's in competition with everyone else? He says, two of a trade never agree. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of something than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but that's not the case. They are proud of being richer or more clever, 
or not just good looking, but better looking than others. If everyone else becomes equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of of competition is gone, pride is gone. This is why, and he goes on to say, this is why I say that pride is essentially competitive in a way that no other vice is. So let me ask you the question. Do you consistently compare yourself with other people? Trying to measure up. Like when you come into a room, you instantly start thinking, who's in here? How do I, how do I make sure that my place is kind of secure in the room? So when you look at the look of another person, you're consistently comparing yourself to them. When you look at the um, wit of another person, when you look at the athletic ability of another person, when you look at the brains of another person, consistently comparing yourself to them, that's all pride. And humility, the humble, they, they are content in God. Number five, prideful people are judgmental and critical of others. The humble compliment the good in others. See, for the prideful, that they cannot point out a strength in another person. It's too scary. It's too threatening. See, for the prideful, their main goal is to keep everyone in their place below them. So the last thing they would want to do is actually give honor and compliment someone else. It would compromise their place. But, but for the humble, you know what you can freely and graciously do? See and recognize and compliment other people. It just flows freely for you. Number uh, six, prideful people are not teachable. Um, the humble are. So, so the prideful already know everything. So how, how's anyone going to teach them something? That, I mean, they're, they're totally unteachable. They're the ones that know it all. They're the ones that finish your sentence before you finish your sentence. Okay, the prideful are, are not teachable, but the humble are teachable. The humble are, are gracious. Number seven, prideful people refuse repentance. The humble repent quickly. See, if, if you would say in this room right now, if you would say, you know, what, I'm just kind of a stubborn person. You need to call that what the Bible would call that. You know what the Bible would call that? You're a prideful person. That's what the Bible would call it. See, your refusal to repent, your stubbornness in that is linked to your pride before God. You contending with supremacy before God. But the humble are quickly are, are quick in their repentance. Number eight, prideful people are grumblers. The humble are grateful. See, for the prideful, every time someone asks them, how are they doing? They have a list of 19 things that they reel off of how life is terrible. This is, this is the prideful. They see everything through a lens of woe is me. How, look how mistreated I am. I'm so undeserving of this. But you know what the, you know what the humble see? That everything above hell is a grace from God. Everything above hell. Number uh, nine, prideful people can't enjoy life. The humble can. Do you know that the humble are the only people in the world that can actually laugh? And I'm talking like belly laugh, like lose it, out of control. Everyone around me just lost all respect for me because I'm down on the floor rolling around. That sort of a laugh. Only the humble can do that. Prideful people cannot do that. Number 10, prideful people can't see their pride. The humble have a deep awareness of their pride. See, if you're the person that, that it, right now this morning you're saying, um, well, it's a good thing I've got that one whipped. It, it's a good thing that I'm good on this one. You know what you are? You're prideful. You're so prideful you can't see your pride. But, but for those in the room who have a deep awareness of their, of their pride, 
have a deep awareness of how it wrecks so much of their life, that's actually the person that has made progress and growth in humility. And I love what C.S. Lewis says. He goes on to say, don't be surprised at what you find in a humble person. Like, don't be surprised when you meet this guy and this is the humble picture. He, he says this, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarny person. Smarty means kind of flattering. He will not be some sort of a, a greasy, smarty person who is always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you'll think about him, this humble man, is that he seemed a really cheerful, intelligent chap. I wish I used that word more. <laughs> a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility at all. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That, that's a humble person. So, so let's just ask you, where are you in that? Like, How, how does pride show itself in your life? And, and we're going to finish here. We'll land the plane um, with this last Last thing, verse five, this command toward humility. Peter's going to tell, tell you this, that you need to clothe yourself in humility. Look, look at verse five, second part. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. And I love that imagery. That, that's an active thing, that you actually have to be pursuing humility. That that needs to be on the forefront of your mind. That I'm actually putting on the clothes of the humble. I'm actually seeking it, trying to grow in humility. Okay, so the question becomes, how do you do that? Let me give you a couple of responses from this text. I want to widen out and we'll finish with um, a third one. So here's the first way you do that. Look at verse five. Likewise, you who are younger do what? Be subject to your elders. Be subject. So, so there's a connection here. You've got that as the first part of verse five. And then you've got, this is the second part. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Okay, so we tried to go back. Uh, this has, I think, been about two or three weeks ago and address what does it mean to subject yourselves to your church leaders, to your elders? What does that mean? And I tried to be help, as helpful as possible in giving three or four illustrations of that. And here's some of what we talked about that day. That one illustration of what it would mean to subject yourself to your church leaders or your elders is that you heed their biblical instruction. Doesn't mean that you're heeding their preferences, all of their opinions, but it would be that you're standing under the word of God as they teach it. Now that means that you do more than listen to a sermon. That means that you think about that and you actually apply that biblical truth to your life. That You actually try to live in and walk in that. So you heed um, your leader's biblical instruction. Secondly, you're plugged into the various equipping pathways. If you're an adult at Stonegate, that would mean the primary equipping pathway that you're involved in is our home groups. That you're in a home group. That if you've been coming for a year, six months, three months, whatever, and you're not in a home group, I don't think you're, I don't think you're living in this command to subject yourselves to your leaders. Part of that would mean you're in the equipping pathways. Three, that you recognize your need for spiritual authority in your life. And we talked about the fact that you know how the Bible talks about you and I, Christians? You know how the Bible talks about us? As sheep. That's not a compliment. Sheep are not smart. Sheep are prone to wonder. Sheep get themselves into trouble that they cannot get themselves out of. And that's why we all, you, me, every one of us in the room, need good shepherds and good pastors in our life. Even good pastors need good pastors. This is one of the reasons that we believe in a plurality of, of, of leaders, plurality of elders. 
That we all need good pastors, good shepherds. And so if you don't recognize that, it's just because you're unaware of how prone you are to wonder. Right? So, so we should all see spiritual authority in our life from qualified men as a grace from God. And lastly, we talked about um, subjecting to your, to your, being subjected to your leaders means that you're actually a covenant member of a place. That you actually step across the line and you push your chips in, in a church underneath the authority of leaders. So we talked about Hebrews 13, 17, where it's going to start out kind of echoing these words in 1 Peter 5. The writer of Hebrews is going to say that um, you, members of a church, you need to submit yourself to your leaders and you need to obey them. Okay, that's what you need to do. That's, that's your role. Leaders, pastors in a place, here's your role. You have to care for them. And you, one day, leaders and pastors are going to give an account for their soul. That, that's the pastor's role. Okay, so... so Covenant membership is a formal expression of that. It's saying that if you're a member at a place, it's saying I officially and willingly recognize that I am to come under the authority of this specific group of leaders. Not the leaders of every church, but this specific group of leaders. And and if you're the pastor at a place, it's a willing recognition, official recognition that these are the people God is holding me accountable for. These are the people that I have been called to shepherd and to pastor, to keep watch over. That's what, that's what church membership is. It's a formal recognition of that. Okay, now I want to add just one other angle at that, and then we'll keep moving here. But see the connection in this in 1 Peter. That you doing that, you submitting yourself to church leaders, is actually a way that you grow in humility. So you submit yourself, that's the first piece of it, verse 5, and then that's how you clothe yourself, second part of verse 5. That's the connection. See, in that way, all authority in our life, it doesn't matter if we're talking about a boss, if we're talking about the president of the United States, if we're talking about a police officer that pulls you over, in every one of those instances, they are a grace from God to grow you in humility. So, So you subjecting yourself to your church leaders is a great way for you to pursue humility. To clothe yourself in humility. Here's the next way. Verse uh, 6 and 7 here. By casting your anxiety on God. Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Okay, and this is how you humble yourself. Verse 7. This is how you do it. Casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We live in a culture that is dominated, marked by worry and anxiety. We're all frazzled and frayed and frustrated. This is like the mark of what it means to be an American. This is all of us in the room. This is how almost all of us live. But can I tell you what this passage confronts us with? That, that underneath our worry and our anxiety, that Peter would say, you know what's there? Pride is there. You know why you worry? You know why you're anxious? Because you're prideful. Not because you're humble, because you're prideful. So, so we need to call that what it is. If, if we came in the room and you would say, you know what? I'm just one of those people who worry a lot. I'm just, I just kind of have an anxious heart. It's kind of who I am. You need to see this. You know what the Bible would call you? That's a prideful heart, not just an anxious heart. Do you, do you see that? So, so to make this connection, the root of worry and anxiety is an overconfidence in your own opinion. The reason that you worry, the reason that you're anxious is you have an overconfidence in in how you think the world should work. See, the reason that you're anxious is because you're looking at God saying, I don't like the way you're arranging things. And I'm worried that you're not going to arrange it like I think it should be arranged. That's why you're anxious. See, a humble Christian can actually say this. God, I have no idea what you're going to do tomorrow, what you're even going to do today. I have no idea what the next moment holds for me. But here's what I do know. 
that you are a good dad for me and you are the sovereign God of the universe who controls everything. And I know that you care for me. See, if if right now, if there's something in your life where you cannot say that, where where if you're saying, um, God, I don't trust the way you're going to handle tomorrow. I don't know if you care for you. That's pride. See, the humble can say, God, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who you are. So I trust you. That's a humble heart. And if you can't say that, you need to recognize this. If you can't say that, that is pride in you. That's pride. I look at the basis of why we can cast our anxiety upon God. You see it in verse seven, because he cares for you. Can I just remind you of that this morning? That if you're a a believer in here, that you're an adopted son or daughter of God and that God actually cares for you. That God really does care for you. Have you ever been in a situation where someone that you have gone to great lengths to care for looks at you and does not trust you? If you're a parent, you can go ahead and shake your head. Yes. Right. So you've gone to great lengths to care for them, but they don't trust you. See, this is what worry is to God. He has gone to great lengths to care for you. You know what sort of lengths he's gone to? Uh, he, he, this is Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Romans eight thirty two, where Paul's going to say this, that he, God, he, he gave his own son to you. Like he didn't spare his own son. He gave Jesus to you. To you. So, so why would you not trust him to give you everything else? Did you see that? That God has given you what is supremely valuable. So why wouldn't we trust him with a million other less valuable things? Why wouldn't we trust him to give us everything else that we would need if he's given us that? See, in this way, I love what one author says. That worry is always a stab at the integrity of God's love. That's what worry is. It's a stab at the heart of God. And then you've got this idea of casting your anxiety upon God. This is, how, this is how you pursue humility. Those things that you're anxious about today, that you actively cast those upon God. And that's not a, um, I'm going to write these things down on a piece of paper. I'm driving down the road, go down the window. I'm going to throw it out. It's not that. It, is, it requires you to actively think, what am I worried about? Why am I worried about that? So, so you get that. And then it requires you to think about God. What does God promise and pledge to be for me because of the work of Jesus on my behalf? What, what has he promised to me? He's promised to be a good father for me. He's promised to, to use his mighty power every moment of every day for my eternal good. He's promised me that. And, and now you take your worry and the promises and pledges of God and you do what the Puritans used to say. You sue God for those promises. You sue him for them. You take him to task for those promises. This is when you get to preach the gospel to your heart. That God, this is who you have promised to be for me. And in light of that, I'm casting all of these things I'm worried about. I'm giving all of those to you because I know you care for me. I know you're a good dad for me. That's pursuing humility. And lastly, and we'll finish with this. We pursue humility or clothe ourselves um, with humility by reflecting on the wonder of the cross. The cross is the only place humility is produced. The cross is the key to humility. The cross is where we see that before God, we are ultimately sinful, deserving nothing. But because of Jesus, because we're loved so much, here's what we get to see in the cross. That we're loved so much that that Jesus was actually glad to die for us. So, So see both of these two things. You're so sinful, he had to die for you. You're so loved, he was glad to die for you. 
This is what the cross shows you. Who God is perfect, righteous, who you are ultimately sinful and who Jesus is for you. Listen to these words from Martin Lloyd-Jones. There is only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and pour contempt on all my pride. Nothing else can do it. When I see that I am a sinner, that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I'm humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us this spirit of humility. Nothing but the cross can do that. Nothing but reflecting upon the wonder of what God has done for us. On the, nothing but that can produce humility in you. So I, I want to finish by reading a passage of Scripture. This is going to be Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 2. And let me just read this before you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to show us what God demands from us as it relates to humility. And it's going to show us how to actually get it. How to walk in it. Philippians 2 goes like this. Verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is Humility. It's God in the center serving other people. It's other people as, as, as better and as um, worthy to be served in your eyes. This is the, the heart of humility. This is the posture. But I read this passage and here's what I think when I think about my life. How do I do that? How is this possible to see people like that? Here's the answer. Verse 5. Reflect on the wonder of the cross. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also, or which is yours in Christ Jesus. Six, who, though he was in the form of God, he was God. He did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself the sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is Jesus, all-powerful, son of God, sovereign of the universe, the picture of humility, dying in the place for prideful people so they could be forgiven. You've got to get that. You've got to see that. That you are the prideful person that he died for. That you are so sinful that Jesus actually had to die for it. And then here's the promise of humility. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And this is the promise of God for the humble. That there will be a day that he exalts you. Verse 10, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. When I think about Stonegate and pray for us, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of things that we could be known for. I think we could be known for church planting. I think we could be known for adoption, and orphan care. I think we could be known for a lot of different things, but I, I would invite you to join me in praying that we would be known for this. That, that is a group of people who are marked by humility. A group of people who it just oozes out of them. Can, can we all pray for that? Let's pray together.
want to give you just a minute just to sit under that, allow the Spirit of God to press into you whatever needs to be pressed in. I'm just going to pray over you that God would give you eyes to be able to look sharply at your heart. Some of us right now can't even see that pride is ripping our lives to shreds. In our marriage, pride is the greatest enemy, humility, the greatest friend. Our marriage is being ripped to shreds because we're prideful. Bad financial decision after bad financial decision because we're prideful. See, even in a moment like this, pride says, don't get help. Don't get help. Don't look weak. Show yourself strong. And can we just all admit, no one's strong in this room. No one. See, pride in this moment is keeping us from movement toward God, from growing in the grace of God. And for those of you who are proud before God this morning, you're in the ring and God accepts no competitors to his crown. God is actively opposing you. He's working to frustrate you. And oh, maybe this morning would be a moment where you would humble yourself, where you would seek help from God, where you would repent quickly before God, where you, where you would see your pride and you would run from your pride, you would turn to Jesus as a solution to your pride. See, to become a Christian, it requires humility. It requires you seeing that you have nothing before God. You have no merit before God, no grounds for boasting before God. It requires that you see that you are so sinful that Jesus actually had to die for you. It requires that sort of humility. And for some of us in the room, our pride is keeping us from responding to God. For some of us in the room, our pride is actually the thing we're banking on for our acceptance before God. We think that we're good with God when our pride has never allowed us to say, God, we're bankrupt before you. We actually need you. And so we're going to sing, and I'm just going to pray over you that you would respond appropriately. If that means you need to get on your knees before God, if that means that you need to seek help this morning, I'm just going to pray that you'd respond appropriately. God, I pray for good grace for us. Give us grace that would see. Give us grace that, that would be humble enough to respond, to, to hold up our hands and say, God, we need you. To bow on our knees before you and say, God, without grace, we cannot make it. Without your help, we cannot make it. And so, God, I pray for that. God, I pray the defining mark of, of this group of people would be humility. A willing acceptance and a willing awareness that we are in desperate need of you. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand and sing with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.